Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Okay, so if no one has reminded you yet, today is April Fool's Day. Happy April 1st. (laughs) And as someone who personally really loves harmless pranks, I hope that you all have plans to play a prank on a friend or a family member today. All in good fun, of course. But if you don't have any such plans, you can send them a recent Daily Signal article about how the pro-abortion movement is using pets specifically dogs, to promote abortion. It's a story that uh, definitely seems satirical and like it would be a Babylon Bee article. It's not. It's not a joke. It's real. The organization NARAL Pro-Choice America is now using and promoting the hashtag Pro-Choice Pup. They posted a photo of a cute dog with the caption, This is Bandit. Bandit loves reproductive freedom. Bandit hates anti-choice disinformation. Bandit is a perfect... Hashtag pro-choice pup. This was not a joke. It is real. And pro-abortion advocates are posting photos of their dogs and talking about how the dogs are pro-choice. So this is so obviously a marketing campaign. It's a marketing campaign for abortion. That's all it is. I mean, dogs sell things, plain and simple. But the bizarre irony of this is that so many of our pets are adopted and many have been adopted after winding up in shelters or rescue organizations and humans choose to give those dogs a home instead of killing them because they believe that a dog is worthy of life and having a fair shot at living life. No, Virginia, you're so right. And it just shows the hypocrisy. And even, you know, I tried to give those on the other side. You know, I know there's a lot of good people who just believe that, you know, I wouldn't have an abortion. But for some reason, they think it's it's a right, whatever. You still need to treat it with the gravitas that this and the seriousness. And to have like a silly dog post and, and celebrate you know, the murder of innocent children just is, is in such bad taste. And yeah, it's, it seems like it should totally be a joke. Yeah. Oh, you're right, Lauren. It's such a weighty issue. Um, I like your use of the word gravitas. That's a <laughs> good word. Um, but yeah, it, it's a weighty issue to just sort of make this light, funny thing, uh, which I think, again, like it goes back to like it really, it, it's a way to advertise abortions to make it seem like it, it's not this big issue of, of life or death when it actually is. Um, but I want to go ahead and get to today's show because we have an awesome lineup. So Lauren, let us let us know. What do we have queued up for today? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with gun shop owner Geneva Solomon. She explains why she is a Second Amendment advocate and why she believes gun rights need to be protected. Plus, Heritage Education Fellow Lindsay Burke joins us to explain a big win for families seeking to make their own choices about their child's education. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it.
School Choice has come to West Virginia and here to explain what that means, not only for students and parents in West Virginia, but also what it can mean for states across the country, is the Director for Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy, Lindsay Burke. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. So you've joined us before to talk about school choice and education savings accounts, but can you give us a quick refresher? What exactly is an education savings account? Well, an education savings account in the states that have them so far, and there were five before this week, in those states, a student who is eligible can receive 90% of what the state would have spent on them in the public school. It goes into an education savings account, those funds, and at that point, they can use that money to pay for private school tuition or online learning. They can pay for special education services and therapies if they need them. They can hire a private tutor. And importantly, you can even roll over unused funds from year to year. And you can even roll them into a college savings account. So they are super flexible mechanisms for enabling students to pay for education-related services and products and providers that are the right fit for them. So then, Lindsay, explain what West Virginia just did and what kind of education savings account they're moving forward to sign into law in their state. Well, it's really exciting, uh, the news out of West Virginia, and it was, in fact, just signed into law. So it is now official in West Virginia, but West Virginia now becomes the sixth state in the country with an education savings account. So they follow Arizona, which was the first state to do it in 2011, and then Florida, Mississippi, Tennessee, and North Carolina. So West Virginia is now state number six with an ESA on the books. And not only is that important, but what is just as important is how broad this new option is. It is a nearly universal education savings account program, which means almost every student in the state, over 90% of children in the state, will have access to this new ESA option if they want it. Um, students who participate in the program will receive 100% of what the state of West Virginia, so just the state spending, no local money, no federal money, just the state portion, but students will get 100% of what the state would have spent on them in their prior public school, which in West Virginia accounts to about $4,600 per year. And then at that point, they can use it for all of the uh, services and products that I described earlier, private school tuition and, and tutoring and online learning. So it's really exciting. All incoming kindergartners will be eligible for an ESA, as will all first through 12th graders, as long as they're switching out of a public school into the program. This is great. And it seems really surprising because West Virginia is a kind of conservative, but also old Democrat state that is very pro-union. Yeah. And education savings accounts are not something that the teacher unions tend to support. So how did this get through? Yeah, you're right. And the unions are strong in West Virginia. And last year, I guess a year and a half ago now, the unions protested heavily against modest <laughs> expansions or modest proposals in the state to create any ESA option and uh, to create a charter school law. They protested nonstop when that was the proposal last year. So to see West Virginia really persist in that effort and get it done, I, you know, kudos to the Cardinal Institute in West Virginia. They were really on the ground working hard to see this come to fruition. 
and it has. And so I think, you know, a lot of this is parents are really frustrated. They are voicing their frustration to policymakers. We are at the point now where in a lot of states, public schools have been closed to in-person learning for over a year, which is just, it's unfathomable. It's hard to even wrap your head around the fact that a lot of these students haven't been able to set foot in a classroom for a year. And so I think in general, you know, beyond West Virginia, there's just a lot of frustration out there among families. And I, I think that there are policymakers in some states who are recognizing that and are moving to provide some options to these families to make sure these kids have education continuity, to make sure that they can uh, continue learning, not experience learning loss, that they can access all of those other things that are important to students, the athletics. And, you know, imagine being a, a 14, 15, 16 year old and wanting to go to homecoming or prom. I mean, there are all of these other aspects around reopening schools that for a kid is really important. And so um, I, I think a lot of what we're seeing, a lot of this momentum in the states is a reflection of the fact that state leaders are stepping up, they're providing options to families, and they recognize the just deep level of frustration that so many families are, are experiencing. You're so right, and I'm so glad we do want to talk about school reopenings in, in just a second. But does the fact that the union stronghold of West Virginia passed this give you hope for other states? It does. And we are in the midst of maybe the largest school choice expansion cumulatively among all states in history. And so I, I really do think it's a monumental uh, thing that we're witnessing right now, not just for West Virginia, but next door. So West Virginia yesterday, Governor Jim Justice signs this universal ESA into law. And then that night, so last night, you know, not even 24 hours later, uh, the legislature in Kentucky overrode the governor's veto of a bill that would create an ESA. So now Kentucky will also have a tax credit funded education uh, savings account become law. It has become law um, as a result of the uh, legislature overriding the governor's veto. So that's exciting. South Dakota has expanded their existing school choice program in Georgia. They're contemplating a big expansion of their existing school choice program for students with special needs. That's headed to the governor's desk there. Florida is considering a major expansion of their programs as well. Florida is a state with a really robust school choice landscape. They actually have five different school choice programs in place, and they're considering combining a lot of those uh, programs, taking the five programs down to two, and then converting those all into education savings accounts to provide maximum flexibility to families. And, you know, you go on and on. Arizona's um, trying to expand their ESA program right now. There's two proposals that they're considering. Missouri's introduced an ESA program. So has New Hampshire. So has Indiana. The list goes on and on. In total, depending on, on how you count the states, there are either 29 or 30 states right now that have introduced measures to either create brand new school choice options or to expand them. And 20 of those are education savings account options. So it really is, you know, I think the monumental year for education choice, uh, I, I think that is the best way to describe it. Wow. Yeah, maybe a little bit of uh, of the gold in this year. It's obviously been such a hard, hard year for education with the pandemic, but maybe long term we'll see some fruit 
as yeah. states continue to really think through, okay, how, how do we do education practically? How do we, how do we do it well? How do we put the power back in the hands of students and parents? That's so critical and really encouraging to see so many states moving forward on that. But Lindsay, I, I do want to ask you about school reopenings. As you mentioned, are most schools across the country back to in-person learning or are we still seeing so many schools remain online? Well, we, I think, are at a point where the majority of schools have in-person instruction, which, of course, is good news. And it's also interesting when you hear the Biden administration throw out a 50 percent goal for reopening because we've effectively already exceeded that, that goal. So it would be going backwards, <laughs> the Biden administration's goal for school reopening. I think what is uh, most telling, though, is looking at states and how districts within states uh, stack up to one another. If you look at California, for instance, that's one of the the best worst examples. In California, only about 9.5% of school districts are open right now. And so it really just depends on where you are. You know, you can look at a lot of rural states where 100% of schools are open to in-person instruction, which is, of course, the direction that that we should be going. So, you know, it really depends on where you are, which is frustrating for families, right? Because we do tie education to where you live. And so if you live in an area where the school district has refused to reopen in-person instruction, for a lot of families, they're stuck. They don't have any other options. And so again, you know, to me, all roads lead back to to school choice (laughs) that funding students directly rather than systems would have helped us avoid a lot of the um, disruptions to education continuity over the past year as schools across the country closed down. No, frustration is definitely the right word for it. My mother and my sister are both school teachers down in Florida, and they've been in the classroom since last September, and they they haven't had any problems. Uh, So when you have these cases where, you know, success, the kids are back. I mean, most of the kids, even who started online are now, they want to be back in the classroom with their friends and living up here in Washington, D.C. And kids are lucky if they can go one, two days every week. Um, and now the CDC has come out and changed a lot of the rules, making it safer and easier for kids to go back to school. Now they only have to be three feet rather than six feet. Right. Why do you think there's still so much resistance from school boards and unions and different administrators to, to just kind of get these kids back in the classroom full time? Yeah, you know, it really, you hit the nail on the head. It really is the teachers union right now. Um, at the end of the day, they are and remain the major blockers to reopening. They have continually moved the goalposts around what they see as acceptable criteria for reopening schools. At first, they said, well, we'll bless school reopening when we know it's safe to do so which, as you noted, from the CDC and all the other data that are out there, we know that it's safe to reopen schools. And then they said, well, we'll bless school reopening once teachers are vaccinated. And so teachers in many states were moved up the priority list for vaccination. And even then they said, well, no, that's not good enough. We will bless school reopening once all children are vaccinated, which there is not yet an approved COVID vaccine for children under the age of 16. And so that's basically a recipe for indefinite school closures. Uh, it's, you know, I think a, a very good question as to why <laughs> these teachers unions continue to 
operate this way. Uh, it is certainly a power play on their part. If we look at unions in places like Los Angeles, they have used school closure as a way to try to extract these perennial political objectives that they have had that have precisely zero to do with the question of school reopening. I mean, LA, in LA, it was defunding the police and a moratorium on charter schools and Medicare for all. I mean, you know, things that have been on the union's wish list for a very long time uh, that won't serve anyone well, and that certainly have no bearing on the question of the safety of reopening schools. And so I think at the end of the day, a lot of this is just extracting political wins, and it's certainly a, a matter of maintaining their power. And so how do we overcome the unions? I mean, it almost at some point, if, if they're just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing, how do parents and, and concerned citizens kind of stand up against them? Well, I, I think the number one thing that, that needs to happen is that states need to step up and they need to uh, prevent the unions from trying to extract uh, any sort of political gains on the backs of students and families who are desperate for schools to reopen. Um, you know, if you look back in history, right, this is Ron, the famous, you know, incident when Ronald Reagan uh, gave walking papers to all of the uh, FAA employees who had gone on strike. You can go back even farther in time when Calvin, Calvin Coolidge was president, and he did the same thing with the police union in Boston. I mean, it, it does require leadership stepping in and really dealing with the, the union bosses. And, and I, I would emphasize that because in so many cases, you know, it, it's not the teachers. There are a lot of teachers out there who, just like parents, want to get back in the classroom and be in front of their students and doing what they love to do. So we do need to make a distinction between teachers and the union heads. Um, but, but that is something, you know, we've seen it in Chicago, right? Mayor Lori Lightfoot had suggested that she might actually step in and, and fire protesting union members, but then at the end of the day, she didn't do it. And so, you know, it's, it takes effort on the part of these state and local leaders, local leaders in particular, but it's something that, that does need to happen. The unions have been just such a discouraging theme, I feel like, over the past several months. But it is great to see that states like West Virginia, they're taking this initiative to put power back in the hands That's of right. parents and families and uh, actually kind of infuse some hope into this conversation of education that is definitely a challenging one over the past year. But Lindsay, thank you so much for your time. We encourage all of our listeners to follow Lindsay on Twitter at Lindsay M. Burke, uh, or you can follow her work at heritage.org. Lindsay, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Now stay tuned for my conversation with gun shop owner Geneva Solomon. She tells us how she got involved with firearms and why she supports the Second Amendment. But first, I want to tell you all about one of my other favorite podcasts. It's called Heritage Explains. It's hosted by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher. They break down the big policy debates you hear about in the news, but at a one-on-one level. Using news clips and music, they tell a story, but they also bring on heritage experts to explain complex issues. Go ahead and pull out your phone, if you're not driving, and subscribe to Heritage Explains so you can be in the know on all the issues you care about. 
I am so pleased to be joined by Geneva Solomon, the owner of Redstone Firearms in California. Geneva Solomon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you and your husband own Redstone Firearms together. So I want to start with a little bit of your story. How did you first get involved with firearms? Did you grow up learning how to shoot? What was that initiation and initial interest in firearms? So I didn't grow up in an anti-gun family, um, but we didn't talk about firearms when I was growing up. Um, my father was um, injured by a firearm, actually, when I was very small. Um, and he ended up having a permanent life injury due to him being shot. Um, so we just didn't talk about it when I was growing up. And then when I moved out, went off to college, I ended up getting married um, and had a child. And unfortunately, you know, got married young and it didn't work out. Um, it was a very toxic environment. And during that process, it became very domestically violent. And because of that, I had decided that, hey, you know what? I am my own first responder. I have a daughter. It is my responsibility to make sure that she has protection. Um, and so I talked to the people that were close in my life, you know, my father, um, friends, and none of them were very like, yes, you should be thinking this way. They were more so like, well, be careful and you're being paranoid. And so, I, you know, I'm very strong minded and I went and did it anyway. Um, and I went and did it alone. And it was it was a weird experience because at the time there was no Redstone Firearms in California. There was no gun store that I knew of that approached firearms from an educational standpoint. And so I went into a gun store. You know, I'm a black woman. I walk into a gun store. I have all these questions. And it was just a terrible experience, to be honest with you. And three hours later, you know, I decided on a firearm by just looking at it, which, you know, fast forward now to me is a terrible way to decide on a firearm. Um, but that was just the culture of how, that process back then. Um, fast forward, I meet my husband. Um, I was now a registered gun owner of three guns. We actually talked about guns on our first date because he grew up with firearms. So it was very important to him. Um, and then we got married and we had this whole gun themed wedding, which was funny. Um, and, you know, hindsight, it's funny. And then, um, later into the marriage, about a year and a half, two years into the marriage, you know, we courted each other over firearms and we're like, Hey, we're buying guns all the time. Why don't we just apply for the license? So we did. Um, and it just spiraled into what we have now, which is a gun store. Wow. So talk a little bit more uh, about that journey of actually deciding to make this passion into a business because so many people, you know, we have things that interest us that maybe even, you know, we're passionate about with with our spouse, but to actually take that step into making that uh, our career, our own business, that's a big leap. You know, um, I, I studied business in college. So and I come from a family of entrepreneurs, and I, I'm not saying that's the reason. But my husband was in law enforcement and things just weren't going the way that he wanted to go. He wanted to go into different things and things just weren't working out. Um, and I looked at him and I said, you know what, it's best to do something that you love. And so, you know, I, I told that to him because he had and still has such a passion for firearms, for shooting, competitive shooting, building and things of that nature. And so you know, once we got that license and said, you know what, we're just going to test the waters out and do this for family and friends. Then the creative juices started to flow. I said, you know what, 
the Geneva that went into the gun store many years ago and no one would help her, let me find a way to do that. And so that's where the classes became um, brainstormed because I wanted to make sure that if I ran across someone that was just like me many years ago, that their questions could be answered. And so that's where the whole branding of consult, educate, train came from and approaching, you know, buying firearms and and self-defense from an educational perspective. And we've been doing it for so long. And then all of a sudden now there's this huge like thirst for it. So what are some of those classes that you all offer? I mean, if I walk in to Redstone Firearms and I say, I want to buy a gun, but I've, you know, I've never owned a gun before. How, how would you handle me as a customer? What would you recommend I do? What classes would you offer to me? So there's a class that I've called my baby. I built it. Um, it's a two hour class. It's now online due to COVID and I like it. And we, I call that my online basic firearms class. And literally it talks about how do you buy a firearm? What do you need to do the day you show up? What does that 4473 look like? What are they asking for? Then we go into buying ammo because that's highly regulated here. Then we get into the six fundamental firearm safety rules. And then I really show you how to load and unload a firearm by video, but I also bring out a non-loaded gun And then I break down, these are the things you should be asking when you go into the firearm store. You know, how hard is it for you to drop the magazine? How hard is it for you to lock the slide back? And then I, you know, I just really break it down from a beginner um, perspective um, so that you have an overall great knowledge of this is how I approach this in California. This is the legal way to do it. This is where I go to find training. Um, I talk about traveling. I talk about when you can use deadly force. And at the end, I wrap up and talk about, um, you know, what are the next steps? What can prevent you from passing a background check and things of that? And then I simply say, are you ready to become a responsible gun owner? Because at the end of the class, you can say, no, I'm not. Or yes, I am. Hmm. What do you think is maybe one of society's greatest misperceptions about firearms that they're unsafe that you know if there's a gun in the home you're going to die by a firearm um and another misconception is that if you're black or african-american with a firearm um you're very problematic you're violent and is that misperception do you think truly only overcome through training No, I think there's a history that needs to be talked about, noticed and healed from because there's a there's a systematic oppression when it comes to firearms. And when we talk about gun control um, and many measures that have been put into place and then over time that have been reinvented and blanketed of not being racist, but it truly is. Um, we have to address that. There's no way to talk about it unless we address it head on. Yeah. Um, and that's the only way to get to the root of the problem that, hey, if you're black with the firearm, it's ab- it's abnormal. But if you're not black with the firearm, um, you're it's normal, you know. So we really need to get to that because it's creating problems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that certainly opens up this broader conversation of legislation and uh, you know, obviously, <laughs> the gun control debate is not a new debate. Uh, and every time we see, as we saw, you know, just recently in tragically in Colorado and in Atlanta, 
gun violence takes the life of individuals. And that always reignites this conversation of, okay, what do we do after these incidents happen? And how can we prevent future incidents from from happening like this? And the Senate is currently considering legislation to try to limit gun violence in America. But many Second Amendment advocates are really concerned that the policies being considered, such as universal background checks, that they won't lead to less gun violence, but only limit law-abiding Americans from owning firearms. So you testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee last week on this issue. What was your message to Congress? I really wanted to focus on, you know, going back to what I just said about history, that gun control, when when someone that looks like me, essentially, which is, um, if you put it into perspective, your Democratic or liberal voter, right? If they, they say the Black woman is the face of the Democratic Party, sometimes they say that. Um, and we're over here saying, hey, when you say gun control, what that says to us is you're trying to prevent us or you're putting a price tag on people who look like me to protect themselves. And I really wanted to to dive home that messaging that there are a lot of new gun owners out here that are African-American or Black or however they identify that maybe don't understand gun control, but they're starting to get, they're starting to notice it now because of how it's going to adversely affect them now that they have, you know, maybe they were fearful because of the pandemic. Maybe they were fearful because of all the civil unrest and they finally woke up and said, hey, you know, 911 is not going to protect me. But now here you're saying I may lose the ability to protect myself in the way that I chose due to this legislation. So then what policies should be implemented? I mean, we're we're hearing all of these kind of ideas thrown out like you know, universal background checks, would would that actually limit gun violence? You know, I don't believe that universal background checks will limit gun violence. Now, you have to understand, I'm coming from a place of California. And California already has like the book on universal background checks, right? Um, we get put we could get denied a firearm or a customer could get denied a firearm for having an unpaid traffic ticket. And to me, um, and actually, let me re-say, you could be rejected, not denied, um, from having an unpaid traffic ticket ticket that's delinquent. And to me, that is an infringement. What, is, what does one have to do with the other, right? Um, when we, we go into universal background checks, I understand that that's hard for a lot of people because it then creates that gun registration. And for someone like me sitting in California, I'm like, we already are there. And it's still not stopping the violence that's happening. Um, California has essentially already started to create their gun registration by, you know, the ammo background check. I don't know if you're aware of that. That's essentially created a gun registration. It's backdooring it, but it's already happening. And so, you know, I I say to people that are saying, okay, we're against it. We really got to start being heavy handed because California has found a way to uniquely get around creating a gun registry by saying, well, we're, they're going to put in an ammo background check, which is not really a background check, but that's what they're going to end up saying. So it's very problematic because I truly feel that if you bought your firearm legally, then the government doesn't have a right to know that you have that gun as long as you haven't committed some sort of act to get it taken away from you. Hmm. 
So compared to other states, uh, how strict is California on, you know, the process you have to go through to buy a gun, to keep that gun, so on and so forth? I think the process from a fair standpoint, I always approach a conversation and say, you know, I can be I can meet people on the other side of the road. Right. You have your anti-gun and you have your pro-gun and I can be on both sides and maybe empathize if I could. (sighs) That that's. California is probably not the hardest because New York is pretty up there. <laughs> but the messaging for California is California. They, they, they play a game to me, essentially, where they'll say, okay, the state legislators, you know, or the, the citizens of California want gun control, right? That's what they'll say. But then they'll put out different rules where they'll say different zip codes can do different things. And that's where I have a problem, because if the legislators of California as a whole are saying, well, we're anti-gun, right? But then you get into zip codes where you have more affluential people that make a little bit more money and are of a different of a demographic. They have easier access to, to concealed carry weapons permit. But then you look at other zip codes where it's more black and brown people. And they don't have the same level of access that people in the other areas do. That's a problem. Um, the process to purchase a firearm is standard across the board. Um, there's a test you have to take. I don't have a problem with it. Um, I see the legal reason behind it. It's it's 25 bucks. But then the problem with California is we have the handgun roster, where essentially they're trying to disarm essentially all the California citizens. It's saying if the gun doesn't meet this specification and if the manufacturer doesn't pay us this money, then it can't be sold here. And only older guns can be sold in California. To me, that's actually more dangerous than giving California citizens access to newer guns with newer technology that could be safer. So there's the process to buy a gun to me isn't incredibly hard outside of some of the small infringements that they they take upon you, like waiting 10 days. Um, California also says that if they need more time, they can take an additional 20 days. So that's a total of 30 days. And if you're a victim of domestic violence, that could be a scary time for you. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of that. But taking the test, shouldn't be, it's not a problem to get your permit to purchase or your FSC. And the background check, I think, is fair as well. Um, but other than that, there are some things that we could change here. You know, when it comes to really thinking about (laughs) solutions and I think how we move forward in this conversation and, you know, even, uh, you know, as we maybe reach out to our lawmakers and share personal stories, uh, what, what would maybe be some, uh, some things that, you know, you would want to see, our leaders in our country really take action on? I really would like them to, when we talk about guns and the violence being committed, we need to then start to focus on why that violence is happening. Why is that person or that group committing these crimes? And and that was spoke about at the Senate Judiciary meeting with the doctor talking about, you know, going into the communities, having the conversations, you know, I say a lot that it's easier to get access to a firearm, even with how restrictive it it is in California. I'm going to put it into perspective. It's easier to go out and get a gun 
than it is to go say, I need help for, for mental reasons here in California. And that would blow people's minds away because you would think it's such a democratic state and, and we care about people and we're, you know, I guess towards what socialism is what it's called. But you you drive down the street and you see rows and rows of homelessness. You see lo- loads and loads of people suffering and needing to find their next meal. And California has such a high tax rate. You're starting to think, okay, wait a minute. If all the you know taxpayers are paying all this money, and then we have, you know, people that are starving and there's crime rates is going up. We continue to legislate and legislate, and and we're legislating the wrong group of people. Well, we really should be focusing on another population. Hmm. And what role do you think that kind of mental health conversation plays in the acts of violence that we see when, you know, there is a, a tragedy like what happened in Boulder, Colorado? That's such a wide scope. You know, mental health is not just depression. It, it, it's, you know, growing up in poverty. It could it could be, you know, being bullied in school. It's having access to be able to say, hey, I'm having a problem, I need help, and and not making it so expensive to get that help. You know, um, I know personally here in California that they had mental health facilities um, that were free at one point, and then California closed them down. And what their solution was, was to put those people in jail. Well, that creates an even bigger problem when they, because you know, you know, they that mental health issue is not going to get better when they in in prison or jail. And so then they come out and we create to me, it adds more to the the violence, overall violence. But I'm not a doctor and I'm not that's not my specialty. I'm just saying from a personal standpoint, we got to start focusing on what's causing people to utilize acts of violence, because whether it's the gun or a knife or or a bomb, Something is causing that person to want to harm large amounts of people. And why is that? Why do you think that this is such a a bipartisan issue? Because everyone has a human right, God-given right to protect themselves. You have your own right to take care of your babies, yourself, your loved ones. Um, And yes, it's great to have our law enforcement officers that you know, that'll come rescue us in, in the event of, but depending on where you live, that time frame could be, you know, 60 seconds or that time frame could be 14 minutes. Um, and so everybody, regardless what zip code you live in, how much money you make, you have a right to be able to fight for your life to live. Communicating, obviously, uh, is such a big deal, kind of getting that that unity within Congress, within leadership to find those areas of agreement so we can move forward is so, so critical on this issue. Uh, personally, do you have people, you know, in, in your life, whether it be friends or family who maybe don't agree with you on, on the gun issue? Uh, and if so, how do you have those conversations with them? Well, you, you would have to imagine that prior to 2020, there were a lot more people, you know, um, that thought I was crazy, so to speak, because I wanted a concealed carry weapons permit when I left the house and things of that nature. And I travel with my gun when I go on business trips. Right. Um, and they always said, oh, you're paranoid, you're paranoid, you're paranoid. And I'm like, I'm not paranoid because anything can happen at any given moment. 
and I want to be able to have a fighting chance to survive. Um, but I always say, hey, we don't have to agree. You know, both sides should be able to say, you know what, you can choose whatever method you want to protect yourself. If that's 911, I'm okay with that. If it's a baseball bat, I'm okay with that. As long as you you learn what you're doing with it and you don't use it incorrectly and you keep it out of harm's way for the children to get to so that they don't harm themselves, I'm okay with it. So if I'm okay with you choosing the way that you want to protect your, I mean, protect yourself, you should be okay with the way that I want to protect mine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mrs. Hallman, thank you so much for your time today. We just really appreciate you coming on. Um, This is such a a critical issue, obviously one that's highly emotional for a lot of people, but such a needed conversation to be having right now. So thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, It's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at Heritage.org. Now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Amy Swearer. Amy is a legal fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. She has been on this podcast a couple times to talk about the Second Amendment and policies that affect gun owners. She recently testified before Congress about a piece of legislation known as H.R. 8. H.R. 8 would mandate universal background checks for all firearm sales. Take a listen to a portion of Amy's congressional testimony. There are a number of irrational components to H.R. 8. But without a doubt, what is most concerning is the way in which H.R. 8 places significant mental, emotional, and practical barriers between responsible gun owners and low-risk informal gun transfers that save countless lives every year. The bill limits temporary emergency transfers to only when they're necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm, and the transfers can last only as long as immediately necessary. Now, Senators, I I have no doubt that the language for this carve-out is well-intentioned, but it's so limited as to serve no real purpose. Nearly two-thirds of all gun deaths every year are suicides. 24,000 Americans killed themselves with firearms in 2019. There's every reason to believe that number is higher for 2020. Mental health awareness and suicide prevention are vital but often difficult conversations for gun owners. There's a very real and, frankly, a very legitimate fear that if we are open and honest about our mental health difficulties, Politicians and gun control activists will use it to impose crushing long-term consequences on our Second Amendment rights. So one very common solution is to seek informal help and to leave firearms with trusted friends or family members the moment we realize that we're not okay and for as long as we realize we are not okay. 
I can't stress enough how important this mechanism is for suicide prevention and how often it occurs precisely because it is informal. So really what Amy articulated through her testimony is that universal background checks, that legislation would not fix the real problem of gun violence because most individuals using guns to carry out acts of crime have acquired the guns illegally anyway. And furthermore, the way uh, that the universal background check legislation is written right now is harmful because it actually limits gun owners from being able uh, to freely and privately give their firearms to a trusted friend or family member if they are struggling personally with mental health issues. So you can find Amy's full testimony, follow the work that she does on this issue on her Twitter page, which is at Amy Swear, and Swear is spelled S-W-E-A-R-E-R. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate the five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. We hope you all have a great week. If you're celebrating Easter this weekend, enjoy, relax, hope you get some sunshine. And Lauren and I will be back with you next Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.